You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Greg, our scripture reader, is going to come forward. We are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a passage and a half. So, buckle up. We're going to read this text, and then we'll talk about it. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word or of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power, through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Thank you, Greg, for reading for us. Well, one of the projects that has been on my list to tackle before the end of the summer is to fix my riding lawnmower. Last summer, like a solid year ago now, it was running pretty rough and then it conked out. And so it's a good thing I've got an old push mower as a backup and a son who knows how to use it because <laughs> that's how we've been functioning. A year ago, the rider went out, and I couldn't figure it out. I, I tried to dig into it. I cleaned the carburetor. I eventually replaced the carburetor, and still no luck. What it would do is it would run rough. It wasn't idling well. It would low idle, and then without me even touching anything, it would rev really high, and then it would kill. And so Friday night, I asked a neighbor for help, a neighbor who happens to know a lot more about engines than I do, and so we tore into it. We started the same way. He said, no, let's, let's clean the carburetor. And we even thought maybe we had cleared the problem, that there was a little plug and a jet. But we put it back together, and the engine did the exact same thing. It replicated the problem from a year ago. And so we spent over an hour on this thing, and then my neighbor figured it out. And here's how. He watched and observed and in the words of Winnie the Pooh, he thunk. 
And then he watched and observed and thunk some more. And it was fascinating for me to watch. Now, he's a mechanic at Olympic, you know, the big construction company. And so when I say he knows more about engines than I do, he knows a lot more about engines. And I would just watch him with his hands on the moving parts, you know, the levers and things, and he would kind of pull on this spring, and he would just watch this whole thing. And then you could see the moment he started to figure it out. And he looked at me, and very kindly, he said to me, you know, when you took the carburetor apart the first time, do you think that you mixed up these two levers when you put it back together? And what did I say? I said, well... I'm sure I would have been very careful to put it back together just the way I found it. But he looked at those moving parts a little longer. He just observed, just watched, looked inside the carburetor at how the butterfly valve was operating, and then he said, that's it. He says, that's what happened. When you put it back together, you took these two wire shafts, and you've got the throttle connected to the choke and the choke connected to the throttle. My neighbor had solved the puzzle. When Paul wrote the Thessalonians, this second of his letters, he was helping them to solve a problem. And it had been around for a while. In some ways, he'd already addressed these challenges in his first letter. You can just go back to chapters 4 and 5, which we studied First Thessalonians the first part of summer. But as you know, tricky problems can persist. And that is exactly what happened in Thessalonica. It can also happen here. In our own congregation, in our own church, in our country, in our culture, and of course personally. In our own life, as a Christ follower, a tricky problem or some misunderstanding or some measure of immaturity can sneak in for any one of us and persist. And yet, by God's help, there is truth to be found. There is clarity. And there is a clear ending in sight, which are some of the very themes of this passage. As I alluded to, this is a doozy of a passage. Last Sunday, I I tried to give you a little advanced warning about what was coming. We were in chapter 1, and we kind of deferred that part of chapter 1. We had our Germany mission team sharing their testimonies. And so he said, well, just hang on to it and we'll get here. And now we're here at what appears to not be really a warm, fuzzy passage. But I also want to give you this perspective that it is a good and instructive passage. And I don't wish for us to be so distracted by the challenges in the text that we would miss what it's intended to do. And I'll remind us that a passage like this one is just as inspired, just as God-breathed, as passages like the Sermon on the Mount or the Gospel of John or the 23rd Psalm. And God intended for us to have 2 Thessalonians for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that as we take even these words in, that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this is a good passage And yet I I don't either want to gloss over the portions that are difficult to understand or where you or I might have questions, objections, confusion. As I went through it, I count no less than five potential challenges in these verses. Let me tell you the ones that I'm seeing and you see if they match for you. First, we would ask ourselves, 
Why take time for such an obscure passage as 2 Thessalonians 2? You know, why not focus on Jesus and the Gospels and something that would be more central? Especially, I'd have to say, with such an esteemed guest with us as Hans Jörg from Germany, and, and it had to be this text that was up today. Secondly, do we really have to go into all this end time stuff? You know, it is not one of the pressing theological issues in our time. It's not, these aren't soul-searching questions for most of us. And it's so complicated and it can get kind of strange and people can go off the deep end with this end times kind of deal. And so, why don't we talk about other things? Third, this passage alludes to Satan and the Antichrist, which in this passage is referred to as the man of lawlessness. And you have to ask yourself, can we take that seriously anymore? If you look at the data around the percentage of Americans who believe in the existence of a personal being and fallen angel named Satan, the numbers are decidedly lower than those who say they believe in God. And the numbers are going downhill. Fourth, this passage talks about those who are perishing and people being condemned. Chapter 1 talks about everlasting destruction. We had that in the reading last week. And the same thing here. Is it possible, reasonable, or even responsible to talk about hell anymore? And fifth, this passage talks about truth, lies, and deception. And that salvation comes only through knowing the truth of the Christian gospel. And you might wonder to yourself, well, how can anyone make such an exclusive claim about truth? Why would God even hold people to such a standard? And some might wonder, is truth even that knowable? So, I warned you, it's a doozy of a passage. And these are just some of the things on my mind as I read it and as I prepared for this Sunday. Now, some of these things we will be able to address as we look at the passage but certainly not all of them and not to the extent that we could spend time on them. For that, I want to encourage you to do your homework and seek out others for conversation. You can check in with me and we can carry on from here. But let it be said that this is a good and instructive text. And God gave it to us. Why? So that we would know more about who He is, what He's doing, and His plans for the pinnacle of His creation, which is people. You and I. So with that, we'll move through the text and follow the train of thought. First, Paul says, don't be easily unsettled or alarmed in verse 2. Don't be easily unsettled or alarmed. There is a lot in the world that could unsettle or alarm you. Amen? Yes, absolutely. All you got to do is wake up in the morning and you read the new headlines that are awaiting you. The polar ice caps are melting. The war in Ukraine drags on. The Fed raised the interest rate again. The U.S. lost its AAA credit rating last week. What else? The Canadian wildfires and the smoke in the air seems to be a new norm. As the existentialist philosopher Barbie says in her new movie, the real world is forever and irrevocably messed up. But it is and it isn't, Barbie, right? I mean, it is messed up, but not forever and not irrevocably. There is a God who reigns over all time, space, and history, 
And when you walk with Him, when you trust Him as He invites you to, then you find yourself anchored in a story that does not need to unsettle or alarm you. There are problems in the world aplenty, and they need to be faced. And Christians are uniquely positioned to face them. But they don't need to unsettle or alarm you. For the Thessalonians, there was this certain unsettling claim that had crept into the church, and that is that the day of the Lord had already come. And as you look at this passage and 1 Thessalonians, that was the big news. The day of the Lord is the phrase given throughout the Bible for when God will come to finally, in the consummation of time, judge the earth, conquer evil, and set all things in order. And in the New Testament, then, we start to see it through the lens of Jesus, that Jesus will come again on the day of the Lord. And this bizarre teaching had popped up in Thessalonica where they were saying that he had already come. And it threw people into a tailspin and even into anguish as they thought about the second coming and they thought about the loved ones that they had buried who died and passed on and all sorts of things. And so Paul says, this is the next imperative in the text in verse 3, he says, do not be deceived. So don't be alarmed and unsettled, but secondly, do not be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't fall into this trap, this false teaching that is tripping other people up. I mean, just about anybody with a cell phone has probably received text messages that say something like, congratulations, and some of the words are usually misspelled, congratulations, you have earned $500, just click on this link to claim your prize. Don't click on the link, right? You know it. Do not be deceived. Paul says, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet, not even close, don't be deceived, Because there are two things that have to happen first. And so we add this then in verse 3. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So this in the passage is where we get into some specific teaching about what is called the end times. Even if we don't live in a specific place or culture that thinks much about God or his plans for the future, we inherently know that time is is linear. That on this timeline that we're on, or just even think of our life, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And God wants us to know in advance what the end of the story will be. So that we can live in light of that and we can respond to His invitation to walk with Him and be prepared as His children. So, In summary, again, there's two things that will precede the day of the Lord, and they are, first, a rebellion against God. That means a general falling away and rejection of God and the things of God. And the other thing is this revealing of the man of lawlessness. Now, that's not a title that you hear every day. To me, it sounds like a Johnny Cash song or something like that. The man of lawlessness. It's language picked up from the Old Testament, and then it's described elsewhere in the New Testament as the Antichrist. Now I want to say, let's just skip all the cultural associations that might come with that term, Antichrist, and let's just talk about what the Bible teaches about this significant part of the end of the story. So there is first a general sense in which Antichrist is used that we find in passages like 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, 
which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Okay, so that's one sense of it. But there's also a specific person called the Antichrist. And we look at a lot of places, but I think of Daniel 7, Daniel's vision there. It says, He will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time. Now to look at it at a bird's eye view, much of what we have in our passage from verses 4 through 8 is a description of the Antichrist. That he will oppose and exalt himself over God. He will, in a sense, put himself into God's place and demand to be worshipped as divine. And Paul interjects this interesting line in verse 5, right in the middle. He says, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So this is not new teaching or new information for them. This is review. Paul had been there when the church in Thessalonica was founded, and he had already taught on all kinds of things, including Christ's return. And so he's saying, effectively, but you should remember this. Remember what you already know. And don't you and I need to hear that sometimes? Remember what you already know. One of the reasons we come to church, at least one of the reasons I come to church, is that I've got to be reminded of what I already know. Because it is so easy Monday through Saturday to get sidetracked, to get discouraged, to lose perspective. I heard this tip recently. Somebody said that for every five books that you read, one of those five should be a great book that you've already read. And why is that? Because we forget. We forget the good things that we've learned and we need the reminder. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, he's saying, you know this already. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, won't be revealed till the proper time at the end of the story. But he says, even now, the secret power of lawlessness is at work. So when you and I read the headlines or you know, scroll through and see what's going on in the world and you see the sadness and the calamity in society, you can remind yourself. You can say, that's right, God told us that it would be like this. You can remind yourself, yes, Romans says that all creation is groaning. And yet I know because I've read this book that the end is not the end. That this is not the final word, all this death and destruction and the mayhem that we read about in the news. But the end is reserved for the return of the king. Paul gives us this awesome reminder in verse 8. He says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, I highlighted this in my Bible, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. It's an allusion to Isaiah 11 where it says, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. You see God's father heart. Andrew and Katie talked about with the kids. He will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And that's why we have the imagery in a place like Revelation 19 that says coming out of his mouth in Revelation 19 is a sharp sword. Is that literally what's going on? No, it's a metaphor. It means God doesn't need a weapon. 
All he needs to do is speak. A word from his mouth silences every foe and his enemies are done for. So we have the end of the story. And God's given it to us so we can be prepared for what's coming. The end times may not capture the American attention like it once did. But I also wonder, maybe it should. Maybe we've lost something along the way. Maybe it's not that we have advanced beyond such childish beliefs and we've become so much more sophisticated, but we have, in fact, become ignorant of the spiritual battle that we're in. Paul says in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. And let me ask you, I mean, we know this if we've read earlier parts of the Bible. How does Satan work? In the spiritual battle. He's tricky. He's tricky. I think it's the beginner's Bible. It has the chapter called the sneaky snake. The passage says, and I'll paraphrase, he will use all sorts of things that will serve the lie and he'll deceive those who are perishing. Lies and deception. That is what Satan has done from the beginning. You think back to the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve. He sets them in the garden and they are in perfect relationship with God and each other. Imagine all the beauties of this earth completely untarnished. And Satan shows up. And what does he do? Lies and deception. Did God really say? He says, surely you won't die. And he lets Adam and Eve finish the sentence. That's all it took. Lies and deception. Jesus says in John 8, when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And lest we would be unaware, let me remind us that Satan and his forces will try and trip you up by planting lies for you to believe. Lies about yourself. Lies about the truth. Lies about your marriage, lies about your children, and so on. And if we're not careful, if we are not dressed in the armor of God and preserved by His grace and power, then we will buy the lie and we may swallow it hook, line, and sinker. The passage says, and we're almost done, it says that people perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And I was reminded of something C.S. Lewis wrote when he said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. People refuse to love the truth. And the truth is that important. It's that decisive. That's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Eternal destiny is bound up with the truth. And we can either refuse it and believe a lie or receive it and have life. Jesus said, and we'll close with this passage, He said, if you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth. And what does the truth do? It's not a heavy burden, but it sets you free. I stopped in a grocery store a couple weeks ago to buy a sympathy card. I'll finish with this brief story. 
it wasn't my usual stop. I usually go to some place where there's, you know, lots of choices. There, there was a limited selection. I was buying a sympathy card, and they didn't have any one of the card markers for the sympathy cards with a cross at the top. And so I pulled the sympathy cards that were there, and I'm reading, like, card after card and setting them down, and, and it struck me just how profoundly empty they were. Because what can you say? What can you say in the face of death without Jesus? The answer is not a whole lot. The end of the story comes for all of us sooner or later. And so as we've taken in this somewhat strange passage, I just would ask us, are these things about the end really so strange? Are they really so distant? Maybe they are until they aren't. So let's be watchful. Let's stand firm. Don't be deceived. Don't be unsettled. But the invitation this morning is that you would hold fast to the truth until God calls you home or Jesus returns again. Let's pray as our worship team comes forward. Well, Lord, we confess that we are prone to avoid these things. And we thank you for appointing Second Thessalonians for us today. Lord, if there's any among us who are unclear or resistant to the truth about who you are, we pray, Lord, that you would dismantle our defenses and seal our place in your family. For those, Lord, who know and love the truth, we ask that it would only increase and the beauty and power of your truth would fill our thoughts and affections till the day we meet you face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.